You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc. I'm here today with Amy Banks, who is the founding scholar at the International Center for Growth in Connection, which is a think tank around connection. And your book, your books are about connection. The first book, the earliest book, is one that is now called Wired to Connect, The Surprising Link Between Brain Science and Strong Healthy Relationships. It was originally published under this title, Four Ways to Click. So I've got both. And then the most recent book is, is co-authored. It's called uh, Fighting Time. And it's, I guess it's a joint memoir with both you and the person who was wrongly convicted for killing your father. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I want to start off. I'm talking about this book, Wired to Connect. I guess I have to remember, do I call it this or do I call it this? I'll call it this. Wired. I call it Wired to Connect at this point. So I think that gives you free reign to do it. It makes more sense to people. So Yeah. And I think what this book is about is about the importance of relationships. And I think particularly in America, we have this belief that we're supposed to somehow be able to survive on our own. And the mark of someone who is truly sane, truly mentally fit is someone who doesn't really need people. And your book is there to say, no, no, no. We are social creatures. We need relationships. We need connections and we need healthy relationships and healthy connections. Otherwise we experience psychological problems, but also physiological problems. And this is rooted in neuroscience. And I guess before we really had the knowledge about the neuroscientific mechanisms, we had plenty of empirical evidence to support this. But understanding the neuroscience also offers us some clues as to how we can perhaps remedy some of the problems that result from either lack of relationships or dysfunctional relationships, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, could, I couldn't have said it better. Well, I mean, I guess one question is within the field of psychology, where did we ever get the notion that relationships were secondary? It's puzzling. It, it is puzzling given how primary they are. And I think you're absolutely right. Although when you think about it, our entire culture was really built on this notion of separation, individuation, stand on your own two feet. And, you know, we have such a robust history literally, politically, psychologically, in every developmentally, of believing that to be the case, right? We've created an economic system around capitalism that's all about competition, survival of the fittest. There's so much that's still Darwinian in the way that we think human beings work. And the good news is that there really are ways to shift this, but unfortunately means it, it, it means an entire cultural shift right? This is not something you do person to person. I mean, you do it person to person, but if we just are doing this one relationship at a time, as opposed to one organization at a time or one community at a time, we're bailing out a sinking ship is the way that I see it. Right. And I think there's really 
two problems. One is the lack of sociability or lack of companionship. And so people talk about the loneliness epidemic. But I think even for people who do have continuous interaction with others, those interactions can be harmful or at least something less than fully functional, right? Right. So what we're not saying in my group that has been really invested in studying and working with the idea of healthy relationships, growth fostering relationships, as Jean Baker Miller called them way back when, it's not about simply having a warm body. It's about the quality of relationship. And when you build a culture that is antithetical to relationship, that in fact, pathologizes people for needing other people, right? Calls them weak or you're too needy or you're codependent. Then in fact, a whole lot of skills that are needed to be uh, developed when we are in our infancies, in our childhoods, don't happen, right? We get thrust into adulthood without actually knowing what a healthy relationship looks like. I see this all the time in my own relationships, as well as in certainly clients that I see, you know, in workshops that I give, that people at the very basic thing, they don't understand or know what a healthy relationship would even feel like, right? Because we don't learn it. And I think also you suggest that one's capacity to engage in these growth-fostering relationships is something that's kind of path-dependent or at least reinforcing, so that if one experiences certain types of relationships early in life, then one is best able to interact according to those same patterns later in life, right? Exactly. So imagine we're thrown out into the world as these very helpless infants, right? With all of the preliminary hardware to connect, a lot of impulses, a lot of um, instincts literally to connect. And if we are thrown into relationships with parents, with community, what have you, where that is the value system, you know, attunement, mutuality, respect, all of those things, you know, listening as well as talking are really emphasized, then the system that we already have instincts for develops into this rich relational capacity that's built into your nervous system. But the opposite happens, right? That if we really are feeding our kids this idea that competition is above everything else important, that it's more important to be heard than to listen, then you get a diminishing of those skills. And ultimately, what happens is you build up the stress response in human beings because we're constantly competing against each other and not being able to just kind of smoothly slip into healthy relationships. You use the term fitness a lot. <laughs> I, I kind of love this metaphor because the idea is that we should treat these neural pathways in some sense like like muscles, right? And if you don't exercise these muscles, then the, the muscles get out of shape, right? Uh, and, and so part of what you're offering in the book Wired to Connect is a series of exercises that, that people can do to try to get back into shape if they're flabby, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. I, I love that. I'm a jock at heart, right? I grew up as an athlete. So I think that kind of analogy just fits for me. But I think, you know, that's what we've learned also about neuroplasticity. You know, when I was coming through medical school, 
I learned that the brain is set. There isn't this ability, there isn't this plasticity that we can change and grow literally the neurons, that we can grow new neurons. And so this whole body of neurology, physiology around the brain is still, medically speaking, relatively new since the late 1990s. And so we haven't yet really updated all of our databases to learn that the brain operates by this principle of use it or lose it, and neurons that wire together fire together so that you make neural networks that can work for you as opposed to, to against you, right? And that if you're not working those muscles, then those brain cells will in fact atrophy and those networks will die off and others will take its place. It's, it's simply how we're wired and how this nervous system of ours is supposed to work. Right. But from an evolutionary perspective, I suppose it makes sense, right? If you're exposed to a particular type of environment early on in life, then the, the mechanisms that are adaptive to, to that environment then become your operating system going forward, right? That's exactly right. The whole nervous system is about adaptability, right? ultimately. And so you remember when the book first came out, I did a podcast, but it was basically this idea of it, it's all about what you feed yourself, right? If you feed yourself hyper-competition and that relationships are to be suspect, that you shouldn't need anyone, your brain is going to develop in that. But what that looks like is you being cut off from the natural ability to be soothed in relationships. And what that means is your stress response system gets a free reign to be going 24 seven, which ultimately that's what you were saying before you were, I think, mentioning that the book contains, which is ultimately your sympathetic nervous system or your stress response going all the time is gonna impair your immune system and not only make you depressed and anxious, but also sick over time. But what I find interesting is that if you, are exposed to a particular environment at one point in life, and then your response system adapts to that environment, you would think that if you encounter a different environment, then you would have reason to switch back. But it seems that people seek out the environments for which they are adapted. And so it tends to reinforce the response system to some degree. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are these glitches, I would say, in the nervous system, and that's one of them, right? You'd hope that if you learned kind of some bad patterning early on, that you'd be able to change it. And of course you can, but it takes a whole lot of intention and attention to do it. It's not an easy thing because once we get these grooves in place, once we get these networks set up, then, you know, by and large, we're just operating implicitly with these networks. And we find, I can't tell you how many times myself included have sort of thought, okay, I'm not going to have this relationship that was like the one with my father or my mother or whatever. And then I think I've picked the perfect person. And then five years down the road, lo and behold, it's the same thing again. We just do, we do it almost in spite of ourselves. Let's, let's walk through all four of the pathways and use the acronym CARE, right? So calm, accepted, resonant, and empowering. And maybe we can start with the first, which has to do with the vagus nerve. And I didn't realize that the vagus nerve was sort of a relatively recent discovery. What role does it play in the fight, flight, and freeze response? Yep. Great question. So the vagus nerve in and of itself is not a recent discovery. 
The smart vagus branch of the vagus nerve is a recent discovery. When I was in medical school, again, this was back in the late 80s, embarrassingly so, but I learned that the autonomic nervous system was composed of the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic. And I think that's pretty, pretty much still how it's taught, right? And the sympathetic is your fight or flight. It innervates, you know, the muscles in, in your, your legs and your heart, your lungs and all of that. And it prepares you to either fight or flee any kind of danger, right? And then the parasympathetic is the rest and relax system, right? It's what we try to tap into when we're doing any basic mindfulness or meditation goes into the similar, very similar areas of the body, but it, the, the whole goal of is it to settle down, right? And to be clear, those two parts of the system, they're going to be present in all creatures, even the ones that aren't social, right? Exactly. Right. And so then what happened um, evolutionarily is when we became these creatures that went from mass producing eggs, right? And hoping the strategy at that point for survival was simply if we make a bunch of these thousands and then to survive, then that the species continues, right? But all of a sudden we got mammals (laughs) and mammals, as we know, grow babies inside of them, come out with relatively immature babies and then needed the so-called attachment system to keep, you know, adults and child close to each other because the child would otherwise die. And as theory holds, and Steve Porges is the one that really discovered this in doing research with infants around breathing rates and heart rates and that kind of stuff. But he found that there was another branch of the vagus nerve. And it, the vagus nerve is cranial nerve 10. So cranial nerve originates at the base of your skull. But this one goes into the muscles of facial expression, into the your eyebrows. When you smile, you stimulate your smart vagus into those little muscles in your inner ear also into your throat for swallowing and speaking. And the entire point of it is about social engagement. And what happens is, and and you see it all the time, right? When you go out and say hi to somebody or like, I'm sitting here watching your face very diligently, right? Okay, what's his face doing? Okay, if there's a smile, it makes me smile. There's an openness there. And what that does is when all of that stimulates the smart vagus nerve, it sends an inhibitory signal to your stress response system. And so it's a way that healthy relationships, right? And this facial contact, all of this leads to literally calming one down in healthy relationships. That's the, that is what we call C, it's getting a sense of calm when you're in healthy relationships. And in this assessment tool that you provide to your to your clients and that's available in the book, you can have some relationships which are healthy in some areas and not in others. So when a relationship is high in calmness, w- what does that look like? Well, what it looks like is somebody that on a very basic level you feel safe with. You'd think about this is somebody I would... I could turn to an emergency. This is somebody that I can talk to. This is somebody that gets, that understands my feelings. This is somebody that listens. All of those kinds of health engagement skills, right? So someone, you don't feel anxious around them or on edge or 
you don't feel like you have to walk on eggshells, let's say, around them. Exactly. That's exactly it, right? With the, the eggshell walking is those relationships that are more tied into your sympathetic nervous system rather than your smart vagus. I often do this exercise with folks, which is I have them do embody a positive relational moment. And literally, I have people just for one minute imagine a relationship they've been in recently that was positive and just embody it, feel it. And it's fascinating. People shut their eyes. They'll do this for a minute and you can literally see them. Sometimes they'll grin and that you can get just by imagining a good relation. You don't even have to be in it, imagining it. Your entire physiology shifts to one that's dominated by the smart vagus nerve, which means most people feel oh, they can relax, they settle down. And yeah, that's the sweet spot, if you will in relationships in your autonomic nervous system. Now, in science, we always like to talk about selection and treatment. So is the solution to avoid people who make you feel anxious or is there some endogeneity, right? Is there something that you can do to make those people <laughs> less anxiety-inducing? Do those people reflect to some degree the, the way you are interacting with them? Do you create the lack of calmness in that relationship as much as they do? It can be, right? One of the purposes of the assessment tool that I have is to actually also get a snapshot, not only of your own pathways for connection and how robust they are or not, but also the quality of, you know, I have people choose the five people they spend the most amount of time with, whether it's a good relationship or bad, because obviously if you're spending a lot of time in a bad relationship that's stimulating your stress response system, that's going to also be overdeveloped. So the, the answer to your question is both, which is in a relationship that ranks pretty low on the calm scale, right? It could be you, it could be them, and it could be some confluence of both of you. Right. But what's important is having a snapshot of that. If it is the relationship, actually, that doesn't feel supportive, safe, where there's not a lot of mutuality, where there's not a lot of listening in addition to talking, when it doesn't have those qualities, then in order for your health and well being to thrive, if you will, you got to have some other people. You got to have some other people to offset it. You know, we're heading into the holidays. I think it often happens around families, right? Where you might be demanded or need to be someplace with people that maybe necessarily aren't on the same wavelength that you are, right? So the question is, who offsets? So in other words, you could feel calm around someone who doesn't feel calm around you. Yeah, you could. Yeah. Yeah, you absolutely could. I think for a lot of people, we, we would want to know what the assessment of the folks that we hang out with looks like, right? Because we'd want to get a report card. Are we the kind of people that make you feel calm? Are we the kind of people that make you feel accepted and, and so forth? Think about that, right? That's a brilliant idea. When do we ever ask people, how do I make you feel? You know what I mean? That actually would be a really fruitful conversation to have with a friend, with a relative or whatever. You know, you look anxious. Do I make you anxious? Is there something I do that makes you anxious? You know, we don't have those kind of relational conversations, period. The second one is one that is also, I think, to some degree, a, a recent discovery. I, I remember reading about the social pain overlap theory, and it was only because we had fMRI results that, that we could see this. But the feeling of social rejection is indistinguishable from that of physical pain, right? When we look at 
the um, brain imaging. And, and I think this goes a long way towards explaining why there's been this opiate epidemic. Because it, it's, it, it's not like there's been this massive increase in physical injuries. If anything, we, we have fewer physical injuries than we did in the past where people worked in factories with all these big pieces of metal flying around, right? Exactly. So in a allegedly safer world, why are we in more and more pain? I mean, I think it's just what you're saying, which is because social rejection and in isolation and all of these things register, the distress of that registers in the same place as the distress of physical pain, that we share that alarm system. That's how important relationships are to our health and well-being. And so we don't attend to that, right? We might be making factories safer, but we're not making people safer, right? And then in fact, we continue to have the mythology that we are like these stand on our own two feet beings. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. I think it's hand in, it goes hand in hand with the opiate epidemic. But as a signaling system, it, it, it doesn't seem to be as effective. So, you know, if you touch a hot stove and it hurts, you know to remove your finger. But I think the people who are experiencing this sort of pain of, of social rejection, do they understand what the source of the pain is? I mean, is it immediately obvious that, hey, I need to go and find acceptance somewhere right? and if I want to feel better? I think, no, it isn't. But is that because it has not been taught? My, one of my dreams is always to basically teach these pathways to kids when they're like three years old in a very user-friendly way. But if you don't have the language for it, and, the, and in fact, if somebody has rejected you and what you've learned is, fine, I don't need them. Or if you're not picked here, I think everybody knows the feeling of what it feels like to be left out, or they know the pain of isolation, but they don't give it the priority, right? in terms of what that means actually physiologically to the human body, right? So they might know it, but then there's often a, almost like a, a secondary kick in the ass where you feel ashamed that you feel badly that you're not being chosen or that you don't belong or whatever, right? There's this shame factor around, well, I shouldn't need that. I should be okay on my own. I mean, I think the mixed messages that we get around relationship are crazy making. Right. So you're right. We don't identify it, but it's not, I don't think it's because we don't feel it. Yeah. I know a lot of people that have been in work environments where it's been very painful because they've been either excluded, abused, ostracized, or been a victim of bad behavior. And for many of these people, they just think that they can fight their way through it rather than just quitting and getting a new job. Now, obviously, that's not something that's available to everybody. But for people who have other options, it, it sometimes doesn't occur to them because they want to identify with that incumbent group that they've grown attached to. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes it's hard to leave the bad relationships if you're getting other things from them, particularly, right? And now this, you talk about spot removal. What kinds of things can people do? to eliminate that feeling of rejection? Because part of what I think you also talked about how people have a feeling of rejection even when they're not rejected because they've grown habituated to being rejected that they maybe even induce rejection <laughs> through, through their behavior. 
so one of the things that I think, again, and it's a very cultural style that we have in particularly the United States, is one in which we don't deal with difference, right? Rather than dealing with difference, rather than trying to learn how to understand another person who's very different from you, what we end up doing is we judge them and we stratify, right? I think we are so skilled at, okay, you're different than me. Are you better or are you worse? And one of the things that I, again, I do in my workshops is I have people begin to track that. Watch how many times during the course of an hour you're doing that kind of judgment. And it's everything from what my hair looks like today to am I poorer? Am I the right color? Am I on and on? And so always there's a process where you have to build awareness, right? There has to be an intellectual template, you know, in terms of really trying to change deep-seated behaviors. So when you're talking about spot removal, where you've got this deep-seated kind of theory about how the world operates, right? And it's about and it's basically about who's climbing to the top fastest, quickest, and most successfully, right? You have to get out of that mindset. So if you can begin to just slow it down, right? Watch all of the judgments. Watch where you stratify. And it's literally building a different skill, which is how can you look at this situation without judging and stratifying? How can difference be difference? Difference isn't dangerous, right? We create danger in how we manage difference. So you, I think what you're saying is that sometimes when people exercise this judging impulse, they're almost inducing their, their own rejection. <laughs> they're like pulling themselves away and isolating themselves from this connection, which could alleviate this feeling of rejection. You got it. Exactly. Exactly. And how many rounds of being judged or judging, you know, that feeling like, okay, it's happening, it's happening, happening. They just assume everybody else is doing it, right? And nine times out of 10, everybody else is doing it. And so you've got all this judging going on and it's okay, everybody, let's just take a deep breath and cut that out. That isn't an inevitable way to interact around difference right? But yeah, it sets up this constant stratification. And wherever there's a stratification, someone's in and someone's out. That happens over and over again. So each little judgment has a kernel of pain and rejection in it. And one of the tools that you suggest for all of these different pathways is that you step outside of the subjective experience and you just observe. For instance, if you have this immediate judging impulse to just say, ah, that's interesting. That's my judging impulse. <laughs> and without judging it, just step back. And so how does this work, this idea of, I guess, it's self-distancing or sitting above and, and observing? It's a type of mindfulness or self-awareness. Yeah, it's a type of mindfulness. There's a guy, Schwartz, who wrote a book actually to deal with OCD, actually, that talks about doing this, which is if you had an OCD thought, and here we'll say it's a judging thought, and it's obsessive, you can't stop doing it. But the idea is to label it, name it for what it is, which is this is just a judgment. For OCD, it's, this is just OCD. And then- is it naming and relabeling? Is that the- Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is, is name it and then relabel it. Okay. So you can relabel that as, okay, that's, that's just a behavior I learned in this culture. It doesn't have to be that way. There are plenty of cultures that don't do this, that are far more accepting. And it, again, it, by doing that, by naming it over there, rather than that this is really, because we believe, right, in our bodies, we believe that these are truths, right? 
I really am worse than this other person, or that person really is less than me because of the color of their skin or their sexual identity or whatever you want to do it, right? We believe these to be truths. And so it's sort of, hmm, okay, relabel it. That's not a truth. That's just a learned behavior. And then refocus on something more positive. Focus on ways that you can connect across whatever the distance is, right? Now, the, the third pathway is this, the, or the mirror neurons, which you call resonant. And, and this is another thing which I think, when I say it's a recent discovery, I mean, I don't know, it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago that they discovered, I just remember reading it in science and I was like, wow, that is really cool. But it seems like this is something that also can be refined with practice, right? Exactly. All of these. That's the beauty of being able, of knowing neuroplasticity is you can actually, the more you know about it, the more you can actually harness the principles of neuroplasticity to change not only your own health, but also the quality of your relationship. So the mirror neurons were, again, all of this stuff, it's very interesting. It all did happen with the advent of, you know, fMRI technology and imaging in real time and not just cross sections, but in activity, right? And so in, in this case, what was found, it was a lab in uh, Parma, Italy, I think actually, where they were studying macaque monkeys and they were just looking at a reflex, a grasp reflex, right? And they were very, they weren't looking for mirror neurons. They just, you know, they were measuring what the macaque monkey did to grasp. And what happened one day as they're do watching these monkeys and they have a, an electrode in this one F1 area that controls for grasp is what they found is that area fired when the monkey was watching somebody else grasp something. And that it's hard to really appreciate how blasphemous that would have been for neurology at the time where you know, there are sensory neurons, there are motor neurons, and never the twain should meet. And so the idea that a monkey could be seeing something and having a motor neuron fire was just unheard of, right? And so that started this whole research into the field of what then became known as mirror neurons. And originally, there was all this discussion about mirror neurons being these very specialized neurons that code for actions and tensions and come to find out it's much simpler than that, right? That really what we do is that we call on our own neural, neural circuitry to mimic somebody else's behavior in order to understand it. And people listening might not be able to see this, but I'm going to do this for you. This is what I do in my workshops, which is do that. And then what do your hands feel like? They feel warmer. I know. Like that's mirror neurons in, in action. And most people find that really creepy. But what's happening in your brain, and this is how concrete mirror neurons are, is that you just pulled in a whole circuit of in the parietal lobe, you had the somatosensory cortex, which had friction, temperature sensation, and that was happening at the same time, the area in your brain that would plan and execute the action of rubbing your hands together was, was happening as well. So if we had done an fMRI while you were watching me do that, those areas would have been active. And that's how we have a felt sense of other people, whether it's emotions, actions, you know, behaviors. That's one of the ways that we know other people. So how does one strengthen or, or weaken that aspect? I've always, I've always believe that if you, for instance, get Botox, it's going to somehow reduce your, your, your capacity to, uh, 
understand what what other people are experiencing as well as experience emotions yourself. Is, is there evidence to support that? There is. There is actually, right? You've paralyzed some of those uh, muscles in your face so that you're not going to be able to mimic what my face is doing. So like you and I are in, in discussion now, if you are loaded with Botox, right now you and I are, are in this bit of a relational dance, even over Zoom, right? Where my face is doing this and you're reading, you know, where am I smiling? Where am I engaged? Where am I? All of that. And feeling me, feeling me through this Zoom, and I'm doing the same with you. But if we've paralyzed our faces, then literally that that feeds back to the brain area where you're planning and executing facial expressions and you can't do it. So how do you practice it? So there's two components, right? One of them is just, well, I'll say two things about it. One is when you, there's studies that show that when you decide that somebody else is other, apart from your group, okay, what happens is, so mirror neurons, you can inhibit them. And when you think of somebody as other, and by that, I mean that pathological, I'm white, you're black, you're different than me. Then what happens when you other somebody is you shut down your mirror neurons and you use a system that's much more around abstract thinking to try to understand who the other person is, right? And as I like to point out, that's where cultural biases can come in and, you know, a lot of misinformation, right? So this idea of othering people, number one, you got to get a grip on, <laughs> Because as long as you do that, you're not going to feel that other person. What about our communication styles? A lot of people text a lot now, and there's been a lot of speculation about the impact on our capacity for empathy. But people corresponded quite a bit in the past. But is it, I think you said something to the effect that in, or, in order for you to infer emotional states from text messages, one needs to have uh, a critical mass of in-person interactions. I was walking past a couple of college kids who were my neighbors chatting on the stairs near my house and heard one of them say to the other, I don't even know how to communicate face-to-face -face anymore. And I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty crazy. She was speaking to somebody face-to-face -face when she said that. But I, thought, I, was, I was wondering if, do we see any trends? I think the trends around, I do think the trends around social media are by and large, I don't want to say are, are just negative because I don't think they are. I think it's clear around things like Facebook likes, that kind of stuff. The number of likes you have is inversely pro proportional to how you feel about yourself. So we know that really messes with kind of your sense of yourself and your sense of relationship. What I also want to point out though is, and I do a whole workshop on this, which is, you know, there's antisocial media and there's pro-social media. You can use the exact same things in a pro-social way, right? And I remember, I don't know if you remember this phase or whether you had kids or not, but when my kids were old enough to get a Wii, do you remember those the Wii things? And then you create those little Wii characters. And I swear to God, I could feel those Wii characters, right? Just as when you look at the Eisenberger and Lieberman studies of the cyberball experiments where they learned about the fear, the pain of social rejection, people would respond to these little doughballs dough of people, right? And being, they were one of them and they would be left out. So we have the capacity, right? With emojis, with other things to be able to relate a little bit. But yeah, I think you have to have some baseline of human face-to-face -face interaction to get the whole wiring process up and running to begin with. 
right? Now, the final letter, E, uh, which has to do with energizing, you, you talk about the dopamine pathways. Now, this one is, to me, the, the most interesting because it, it seems like you could go a lot of different ways here. On the one hand, there are people like myself that like to think of themselves as dopamine addicts, always looking for new insights and new ideas. But I know other people who I like to think of as dopamine addicts who are just like running after these little bursts of two-minute videos and so forth. In relationships, you can imagine the same thing, always discovering new things about your partner, continuously energizing them with novelty and with, with curiosity and so forth. But then there are all these dysfunctional relationships, which I think also hijack the dopamine system, right? Where people use intermittent rewards to create some kind of, of addiction. So how can the, the dopamine channel be harnessed to create these growth-oriented relationships? Yeah. I think the first place, again, that you want to start is, is getting the cultural imperative that we have <laughs> to disconnect dof dopamine from healthy relationships, right? So, you know, if you're in a culture that is all about the separate self, right, at some point you're in a real bind because dopamine, we all want dopamine, right? It's one of the hormones that give us, it gives us energy, it gives us clarity, it gives us a good feeling. That's a basic human quality that everybody wants, right? Even beyond just us dopamine addicts. But once you take that away from people and start pathologizing the need to need other people, then, you know, what I say is that people still are going to get dopamine, right? So they're going to go elsewhere to get it. And I do think that's part of what we set up in our culture, right? So this is like the enriched rat cage, right? So if your relationships are weak, you're more likely to become addicted to substances. To cocaine. Exactly. Exactly. And if your relationships are weak, you're more likely to go to the mall and spend money. You're likely to go to the liquor store and buy booze or fill in the blank of whatever you could do addictively. Where it starts first in what I talk about is trying to reconnect the dopamine reward system to healthy relationships, right? So A, you, number one, you've got to have some relationships that are good enough that they actually stimulate your dopamine. And then, and then it's a matter of turning to those relationships when you're craving dopamine, right? I, I literally talked to my daughter about this the other day. She's in a great, you know, this is in a great love relationship right now. And I'm, and trying to come off some nicotine and it's think of your boyfriend, right? Go there when you want, when you want to pick up, but really just. Unless your boyfriend's anxiety inducing. And then, <laughs> then it's like, you're going to reach for the smokes. It will, absolutely. And then, and, and then don't, because then it's going to drive you from the nicotine to the pot, right? Right. You don't want to go there. But again, it's sort of really developing the cultural awareness of what the separate self culture is doing to us in terms of really rerouting some of these primary pathways that we need to live and thrive and sending us off into other corridors that actually are killing us. Now, I'm an economist to always talk about trade-offs. If these systems are plastic and they can adapt to the environment in which they're shaped, then, then presumably the characteristics that you think of as dysfunctional, I mean, they're functional in some environments. So if, if you do have, say, really good vagal tone and you have your mirror neurons are all set to go and you can derive dopamine from relationships and so forth, can this be harmful in certain environments? Are, are there environments where that sort of person is 
likely to maybe fall prey to con artists or be overwhelmed by the suffering of the people around them or be inadequately competitive in a rat race. Exactly. Am I undermining capitalism, right? Basically. Yeah. Yes, I am. And I'm doing it intentionally, right? I think your point is well taken, which is if you enter into trying to change these pathways and you don't actually have any healthy relationships, right? Or if you are so tied into this hyper-competitive mode of being in the world, then yeah, that, that will be a price you pay. Another way to think of it, though, is that's the price you should pay, right? This is what we need to get away from. But you're absolutely right. Changing for some people away from this, you know, it's almost like what people talk about when they get sober, right? They have to find new friends sometimes because all of their old friends were drinking buddies or partying friends. How do you find a community of people, of like-minded people? And that can be a challenge. Yeah, because when you do this assessment, you're evaluating yourself, but you're also evaluating those people that, that you are spending spending time around. You do. And and I also point out, though, that a low score on your um, uh, for any given relationship doesn't necessarily, unless it's a frankly abusive relationship, I mean, obviously, that's the kind of relationship you just need to get out of, right? And that that's just clear. But, you know, there are a lot of marginal relationships where once you begin to understand what qualities of what the qualities of a healthy relationship are, you can begin to try to have conversations that point in that direction. See who's open to trying to interact differently, right? There's a lot that you can do with marginal relationships that is really more out of a social ignorance and not being taught and not a malevolence. When I talk to people about this and when I do my teachings, you know, people by and large are just relieved to hear this news about relationships and it gives them some guideposts to begin to think about how they might try to shift, change, or grow the relationships that maybe aren't as satisfying as they would like them to be. When I looked at the various case studies in, in the book, and you offer a whole bunch of them, it seems like the majority of the people that were in the top five were either family or work colleagues. Now, it's difficult to switch out your family, and it's difficult to switch out your work colleagues, and it's even very difficult to switch out your friends. I mean, we hear about stories of people who find success in, say, professional sports, and their dysfunctional friends follow along, right? We hear other cases where they ditch some of their best friends for entirely new crowds. If you can't change your friends, and you can't change your family, and you can't change your coworkers, what do you do in those circumstances? You find new communities. However, what I also want to say is I think that when people learn, you know, again, these principles of healthy relationships, you usually don't have to just throw out relationships, right? Again, unless they're really abusive. And there can be some tweaking, one or two better conversations, maybe five of the people in their family, maybe this is a culture of we get together and we just tease each other. Not saying that was my family, might have been. We just tease each other. Is there one of those people that may, maybe you could engage in a conversation about why do we do this? At work, can you find somebody that, maybe a new person, that, that 
seems to speak their mind or it's that once you get off beyond the superficial level of these relationships as being just good or bad, most are somewhere in between. And when you, and then it's about finding allies and people that are able to risk a little vulnerability for the sake of a healthier relationship. And I think that often can happen. Let's, I want to switch gears and, and talk about the latest book, Fighting Time. Part of the book is about how both you and, and your co-author, Isaac Knapper, your lives were shaped by some very early life experiences, right? And particularly ones that, that were traumatic in, in very different ways. Yours was the loss of a loved one, and and his was being part of the judicial system, right? The incarceration system. And I think part of the book is also about how you were able to overcome, you're both able to overcome some of this adversity. Maybe tell a little bit of the backstory and how you originally thought to reach out to Isaac. Yeah. The backstory is this, that when Isaac and I were both 16, uh, my father went to a conference in New Orleans, the Hyatt Regency, went out to dinner at the French Quarter, came back with a colleague and was held up in front of the Hyatt Regency and murdered on the spot. And within a few weeks, Isaac Knapper was picked up and accused, railroaded, and then convicted in a one-day trial of the murder of my father. It's very much a story about racism. It's about systemic racism. It's about the prison system in our country and all that doesn't work. He went to Angola, the bloodiest prison in the country, when he was just 17 and with a sentence of life without parole. So he was there for the rest of his life. In 1992, this was in 1979, in 1992, his mother was actually able to get a police report that actually had exculpatory evidence that the detectives had withheld and the prosecutors had withheld from the defense that was very clearly would have uh, gotten him out of the charge. So he ended up being exonerated, released, um, but nobody told our family. And we found out accidentally when my brother-in-law in 2005, so a good 25 years, 2004, 25 years after the uh, murder and conviction, we just by accident, we found out that Isaac had been exonerated. And at that time, it was pretty devastating, as I think anybody could relate to. We thought, quote, justice had been served. And to hear the backstory to having this young man have both a very promising boxing career and his life railroaded for the sake of justice for my family was, quite frankly, horrifying to me. We tried to get the case reopened. At that point, I wasn't thinking about meeting him necessarily because it was an open murder case and nobody had let our family know that. So we tried to get the case opened and basically nobody was particularly interested. This was not an unusual thing to happen in New Orleans. And then what happened for me and why I wrote reached out to him in 2015 was that my own kids, I have uh, twins who are not 25, but at the time they were turning 16. And as people who deal with trauma, I'm a trauma specialist as a clinician, know that one of the things that tends to happen is when your kids become the age 
that you were when some very traumatic event happened, that often the symptoms come back for you. And so I was, you know, caught in this place of just being tormented by what really did happen, who killed my father, how could they do this to this young black man, you know, on and on. And I, in out of that place, I reached out to his lawyer, who was then a judge, and she got me in touch with him and we met in 2015. So that's the backstory. Yeah. Now, this event that happened to your family, it had devastating consequences for for other members of your family, right? Yeah. Very devastating. It was, in fact, my own brother just died two months ago. I, I detail in the book, his, he was the one out of my family, along with my uncle that went to the trial. And it was really not something he could handle. He was 20 years old and he never recovered from it. And, and in fact, he just died two months ago. And, and again, I think a lot of it was trying to escape the tra- trauma through alcoholism. He also had MS. And so it's a long, complicated story. But all of us have had long, long-standing health issues that I think were from this loss and trauma, really. Now, for you in, in individually, you talked about how when you were at the, at the time of the event, you were, you thought of yourself as the strong one, right? The one that was supposed to power through this and keep the family together. Do, do you think that the consequences of that were also harmful? Not only the consequences of, of the trauma, but also the, the way in which you decided to respond to it? Yeah. And I wish I had decided to respond to it that way, as opposed to having it I don't don't even know what I would say that I did to it. But yeah, without a doubt, right? This was a time before victims advocates. We were in Bangor, Maine. Nobody knew what, people weren't being murdered, number one. And to have a family member murdered, um, you know, my mom fell apart and I had a little sister. She was eight years old. I didn't, you know, I felt very protective of her. And I did feel like, you know, I had ingested the kind of New England American stoicism, if you will. Okay, you just got to suck it up. You need to step in here and take care of things. And I do think that the inability to grieve, the inability, I had a truly traumatic kind of freeze response. I couldn't get close to the material that the memories, the any of that till I wrote the book, quite frankly. And that was 30 years, 25 years into having a psychiatric practice, for God's sakes. Yeah. Now, a a lot of people who find themselves incarcerated, many of them are going to be released back into the world. At most prisons, you have facilities for physical fitness, right? People can lift weights, but it doesn't seem like there are facilities in place for people to exercise the the muscles that you talk about in, in these books. And that leads to high levels of recidivism and so forth. What, what would it be like to have fitness training for the different neural pathways you talk about? I mean, not just in prisons, of course, but even in our schools, right? What would it look like to train people? Would it... <laughs> I'm not sure the question whether it's a theoretical or a concrete. I th- I would go in and I would be teaching. I'm serious. I'm thinking you you have gym class, right? Would it- you got it exactly. You would have a whether you want to call it a relationship building, neuro, the neuroscience of relationship building. I don't know what you want to call it, but yeah, I would be educating people 
about just the conversation we are having and then and then begin to think about what does the prison system look at like through this lens it's interesting that you say this because Isaac and I have put together at, with a couple other folks down in New Orleans a, a reconciliation conference I and where we I do share this information and he's part of a prisoner support uh, group which is fascinating to me because these guys get together and they actually talk about relationships. They talk about the impact of prison, of that kind of authoritarianism, of that kind of uh, inhuman behavior. They're not necessarily using the language that I would, but they're having these conversations as a way to try to become deinstitutionalized and move back into some kind of human community. But I would be doing this in schools and prisons, in organizations. I think it's a conversation to be having in any place where there is a gathering of human beings in the United States, quite frankly, because I think we are that out of whack. And prison is is the extreme, probably prison, <laughs> medical school, and corporate environments, I would say, are probably like the worst offenders, maybe law school. Yeah, I mean, look, you don't need to know about lactose and hemoglobin in order to lift weights. Do you think that you need to know something about the DACC and about the mirror neurons, or can you just have some exercises like the ones that you offer in the book to strengthen your fitness? I think you can have the exercises. One of the things that I love about the neuroscience, and I'll, I'll be frank about it, is I think of it as the Trojan horse, right? Which is in a lot of groups, you can just have the conversation about relationships and why they're good for your health and being and whatnot. But if you think about it, neuroscience and science is the, is the uh, language of the dominant culture. And what it has allowed me is to have way more of these conversations with people who would not be listening. That's what I like about the neuroscience. So I, I'm always quick to point out, there's nothing uh, rarefied about the brain or the nervous system. It's no more or less important than the heart or your arm or whatever, but, we are we are so over-identified with the brain in this culture and science in general that if that's the way that I can get in there and have people start listening about relationships, great. I love it. Yeah, I think there's a recent study where they they put a MRI image in the academic article and then they had one without the image and then they asked people how credible was the study and there's a big boost, right? Exactly. That's the ridiculousness of it, right? But if that's what our culture needs to try to correct itself, to, to have some science backing it, that actually the way that we're treating each other is abysmal and that we really shouldn't be like this because it's killing us all and we're not a healthy society. I mean, the mythology that we put out there about being is so grandiose compared to the statistics of what where we really are compared to other countries, civilized countries. It's really quite shocking. And of course, a lot of the insights, if the MRIs didn't exist, they would still be just as valid. But exactly, right, right. RCT, relational cultural theory was was talking about these things, you know, in the 1970s. They didn't have the MRIs, but but the science helps people listen. That's right. So the book is called Wired to Connect, and the new book is called Fighting Time. I, I hope that this book gets some kind of, I don't know, maybe they can do a, a movie out of it or like a, a short TV series. Listen, there's a documentary in the in the works. There's a documentary in the works. Fantastic. Yeah, I look forward to it. I'll definitely check it out. 
Amy, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's really great to talk to you. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.